1: Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Hertel Fernandez, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew Causey about his new book, Drawn to See Drawing as an Ethnographic Method, published this year by University of Toronto Press. Andrew Causey, welcome to the show.
0: Well, hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, I was born, uh, in Southern California. Uh, that's where I grew up. I grew up, um, looking out my bedroom window at the Matterhorn of Disneyland. So I have a kind of surreal childhood. Um, I went to school at university of California, Santa Cruz for my BA degree. Uh, it was at that time, the tail end of the the sort of hippie revolution. So I guess I got the, um, the very last dregs of hippie, uh, aura when I went to school. And uh, I loved going there. There were no grades, which was, for a person like me, um, a perfect setup for um, exploring and learning. And um, we had narrative evaluations. Of course, that's a different story where they give you a little paragraph of, in words, what you did well and what you did not do well, which is in some ways more devastating, but also more helpful. So I got my BA degree in anthropology at University of uh, California Santa Cruz and took many years off because I wasn't even sure I should have been in college because I was a pretty lax, um, sloppy, dreamy student. I took several years off and worked and had n- a number of different crazy jobs and then decided that I wanted to go back to school and went to the University of Texas at Austin to study with Linda Sheely, who is who was a, a Maya epigrapher So I went to study Maya hieroglyphics with Linda Sheely, and I did that for two years, got my master's degree in anthropology, even though she was in the art history department. uh, They let me have my master's degree and uh, took another couple of years off. Because I was also again not sure I wanted to continue on with school, and finally decided to go back to the University of Texas Austin for my PhD. But I changed my topic completely from archaeology to cultural anthropology, and my area from Guatemala and Mexico to Indonesia, specifically Sumatra, where I did my um, field research with the Toba Batak people of North Sumatra and lived with them for a year and a half and worked with them and wrote a lot of things down and came back and wrote my first book dissertation and then first book called Hard Bargaining in Sumatra. Uh,
1: So you began deliberately incorporating your drawings into your ethnographic methodology during that time. Is that right?
0: Yes. I, I, I had done it before when I studied Mayan hieroglyphics because, of course, we had to try to draw the hieroglyphics. Um, And it's a very, I don't know if you know, but the writing system of the ancient Maya is very um, sort of pictorial and calligraphic. And so I was like a fish to water. So I um, realized that drawing something was a good way to know that thing. And Linda Sheely, my teacher, um, was herself an artist, um, originally a painter, and she came to study the hieroglyphics because she was fascinated with the way that pictorial drawing lines um, became a kind of writing system. And so she was the one that really prompted me to um, try to understand the art of the Maya by putting a sheet of paper over a drawing and try to draw what the figure was. Of a sculpture, a stela, to try to actually draw it to see it.
1: Uh, would you uh, would you like to explain how uh, you incorporated uh, drawing into your field work?
0: When I was in Sumatra, um, yes, that's that's um, kind of an interesting story. I started doing my field research as a very sort of staunch. Kind of stuffy Protestant <laughs> field worker, anthropologist field worker, very serious about myself and the work I was doing. And um, I had chosen to work with the Toba Botox because I had visited the area in North Sumatra as a tourist and I liked it and I liked the people. Well, once I started living with them, I realized that any kind of sort of seriousness was the butt of every joke. So I realized I had to lighten up. And I also realized that um, the the tools that I took with me to the field when I originally went, I realized they were they were too limited. I had one of the first laptop computers that was ever available. And so I was typing notes um, of observations and things that I heard or saw, typing them in words and um, taking photographs, of course. But those were the days when you were taking photograph on film. And you'd have to wait, I'd have to wait three weeks before I would get the film back from the processor in Sumatra, and I realized that there I was missing an awful lot of stuff that was going on, partly because the translation of real life, real experiences, real events um doesn't always make its way into words very well, and also that if I was depending on photographs to document what I was seeing. Um, I wouldn't be able to see if I actually got the photograph I wanted for three weeks. And I realized I had to make some stopgap, um, decisions. And that's when I brought my, um, drawing skills into my fieldwork, because, you know, as I was growing up, you know, a kid going to school, elementary school and high school, I'm an avid drawer. I, I sort of come to it naturally. It's a, it's very easy for me to draw, um, and so I realized that I would have to take on that drawing as part of my field research, something I had never intended to do because it, you know, it just wasn't serious. It was not in the toolkit that anthropologists usually go to the field with. So I felt like I was I was sort of doing something either somewhere between naughty and um, crazy when I started making the drawings.
1: Yes, uh, you write about the uh, undervaluing of art in academia, as well as the overvaluing of product over process and art. Talk about how drawing as an ethnographic method fits into both of these worlds.
0: Oh, sure. Well, um, the thing about um, uh, the thing about sort of drawing or art in anthropology—it's um, not really art, is maybe not the right word because I think anthropologists have always valued art you know, capital A art, but what has been put aside is, um, drawing or, um, delineating or painting as an ethnographic method. That is, um, as a way of documenting, I think because of the history of anthropology, it came from uh, a kind of historical basis. It came from a kind of end of, uh, colonization, um, way to, look back and try to understand what it was Europeans were doing around the world. And so the desire to document seriously, scientifically, um, what uh, people, European um, scholars were seeing, um, I think it was felt that drawing was too subjective because there's this very long history in European uh, art or documentation, where people have depicted others, that is, people outside their own culture, have depicted them, sometimes with their best abilities, that is, they did it with a heartfelt sense, they were really trying to depict what they saw, but oftentimes with a very serious bias built in. And so there were centuries where Europeans were depicting the people of Africa, the people of the Americas, the people of Asia, and we're not filtering out their biases or their or their um, presumptions about who these people were. And we're allowing uh, the drawings to look, as we look at them now, They they look like terrible stereotypes. And I think when anthropology really sort of got its feet on the ground in the late 19th century, I think the people doing the work, the academics doing the anthropological work wanted to get as far away from that kind of depiction as possible and felt that um, by focusing on words rather than drawings, or even in some cases photographs, that words held more weight, were more serious, could be somehow validated more easily. I think that was the kind of thinking that was going on. And I think for that reason, Uh, drawings were uh, unappreciated, especially, you know, you'll find them in people's field notes, Uh, all kinds of anthropologists' field notes contain drawings of various sorts, but they rarely make it into publication. So it's, it's for, for decades, it has, I think, been devalued because it's believed to be too subjective. It's too, uh, it, it isn't scientific. It's, it Depicts too much of the artist rather than what is being depicted, and I think that's changing. Of course, it's changing now. I think that's why my book um, actually was sort of uh, uh, allowed to be published, if you will. Was sort of the the editor was actually interested because I think we're moving past that point now, where um, drawing as an act or as a method is no longer seen as so problematic as it used to be um but it's still you know there for a lot of people having a drawing in a monograph an anthropological um, monograph i think is still seen as slightly suspect it's sort of it's rated sort of as anecdotal rather than actual documentary did i answer both parts of your question i can't remember what the other part was sorry
1: (laughs) Uh, you did. Um, but I would like to ask, what would you say to a social scientist who is wary of this methodology? How would you convince them of the legitimacy and the rigor?
0: Oh, so I remember part of your question was process of product, right? Well, the book that I've written is um, much more about process than product, so it's not as though I wrote this for social science practitioners, because that is my intended audience. The bro- in the broadest view, uh, undergraduates I had in mind when I was writing it, um, but you know, any other social science or uh, or, or uh, practitioner dealing with other human beings, um, really, I'm. I wasn't interested in making a how to draw book because there's plenty of those out and other people have more expertise and knowledge than I do to do that. What my book is trying to do is to entice social science practitioners to see their world in more depth um, with more acuity than they are currently doing. And my, suggestion is that you can do that by drawing what you see that that is you can see better when you try to draw what you see because it is forcing your eye to actually concentrate on what's in front of you rather than um, rather than just seeing things as a sort of uh, passing um, series of moments focusing on those things that are important and in doing so, Um, it's not so much about the product that you produce when you make those drawings. That is, you don't need to use those drawings in your monograph, but by making the drawing your writing, this is what I am suggesting. Your writing will become much richer because you've actually seen something in greater detail and in greater, uh, with a sort of greater empathy because you've drawn it to see it. So it's the process, not the not the not the end product. Although the end product might be great, you might want to use it, but that's not the point
1: with this book. Absolutely, and you teach this, uh, or you encourage practitioners to cultivate this way of seeing through études. I was wondering if you could explain what those are.
0: Okay, right. Yes. Well. Um, uh, in doing that, I'll also maybe talk a little bit about why I decided to write the book at all, and um, the, the story is that right now I teach at Columbia College Chicago, which is um, an arts, media, communication, entrepreneurship school in downtown chicago and we have majors say in um, film and dance and um, advertising and media management all different kinds of fashion studies we have all different kinds of majors they they sort of uh, resonate around the arts and communication and uh, so i teach anthropology courses to um to students in other majors i that is i rarely teach students in a major that is affiliated with my own so i'm i'm fulfilling their general education requirements so i've taught a course for for many many years called visual anthropology and that is a general introduction to cultural anthropology through the visual visualities um and what i realized in teaching uh over the years is that i had made a huge assumption. Being at an arts and communication media school, I assumed that the students that I was getting, and I was getting students from all kinds of different majors, I was assuming that they, had, that they were coming to my course for content, but that they all already had skills, a skill set um, that would allow them to see carefully. And I realized over the years um, that I was frust- constantly frustrated with the with the way i was teaching um the responses i was getting and with the work the students were producing it's just i couldn't figure out what was going on until one day i realized i was showing them a, a slide of a classic maya vessel that has a dancing figure on it and it's a very complicated image with all kinds of Baroque uh, um, uh, of headdress pieces and, and words built in. And it's very difficult to to find the character, the main figure in it, because there's so much else going on. And I asked the students to tell me what they saw, and they couldn't see anything. It was like they were seeing a piece of wallpaper. I asked one student to come up and point out the figure. Oh, sorry. Someone, sorry. Just hang up on that one. Um, uh, to point out the figure that was you know, the, the main focal figure. And the student that came up simply couldn't find any figure. And I realized at that point, that I had made this assumption that the students could see, that they could that they could sort of read a variety of different visual images. And in fact, they couldn't. And I realized at that point that I had to teach them to see, which is a really hard thing to do. But I um, had been very influenced in my own youth um, after I finished my BA degree at, at Santa Cruz, I was given a book um, as a graduation gift called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards. I don't know if you know that book, but very influential book in, um, in art and art history. And it made a huge impression on me. Um, and one of the things that she, she was an art teacher at uh, Cal State Long Beach. And one of the things she says at the beginning of the book is that she was teaching art students how to draw and she realized they couldn't see. And so I went back to her book and sort of began to use some of her exercises of how to teach somebody to see something and also, which is a, a huge um what would you call it? It's it's like a, a, a huge gully that people cannot seem to get past. Is there's a lot of people, even artists, who say I can't draw, and they're convinced that that they cannot draw. It's it, they're unable to do so. So I realized I had two huge hurdles to get past, two gullies to sort of you know get the entire class over. One was yes you can draw, and second yes you can see. So I used some of Betty Edwards. Exercises, but then I started to develop my own as I saw the need come up. And that, those series of drawings, which over the years I began to realize what order they went in, you know, which ones were better at the beginning and which were better at the end of a semester, um, those are essentially what the uh, etudes are in the book. I chose the exercises that I saw in my classes produced the best results from a wide variety of students. I recalibrated them to be in book form, because of course I can't be there standing with the reader and and instructing them what to do like I can in a classroom. I had to kind of rewrite them so that they could stand alone, that a person reading the book could conceivably do each one of the exercises and learn something of value from each one of them. So there's steps, there are sort of progression of steps from the beginning chapters to the end as a way to show somebody how to see by using these drawing etudes, these exercises.
1: Yes, I suppose you've answered this in part, but I was wondering uh, what sort of lessons have you learned from working with students um, from an interdisciplinary background over time? You've been teaching this course for eight years.
0: Yeah, actually more like uh, 16, as it turns out. I I look back, I actually have been teaching it for 16 years. Um, I didn't really get my feet uh, underneath me for the first, say, six years. So I guess I've been teaching about 10 years. That is with these drawing exercises incorporated in it. What I've learned from the students is, um, first of all, I love working with students that are open to what they see as a crazy um, project. They think they're taking an anthropology class and I'm having them do all kinds of what they see as very strange um, uh, exercises, you know, thinking of an ostrich in their mind and drawing it with their eyes closed, that kind of thing. They just think I'm out of my mind. Um, I don't mind that. At an art school, great, the better, the more the merrier, crazy people you can have that can actually teach students. Um, what I've learned from them is that they are, um, as they come to the school, I think they have been taught to be fairly conservative in their approach to the world. They think of education as being a very sort of particular kind of thing. And I've learned that I have to break those barriers down before I can get much further. So barriers like what does it mean to be in an anthropology class? What does it mean to um, hold a pencil in your left hand if you're right-handed? What does it mean to look at the world as something that you can see more deeply if you're trying to draw it? It's it's kind of hard to get past that with students. Um, And every semester, I go through the, the same series of Um, difficulties where there's at least three people in the room or sometimes the entire classroom convinced that they cannot draw and yet the first exercise which I um, borrowed from Betty Edwards book um, the first exercise in the book and the first exercise I have them do in the visual anthropology course is to draw what they see uh, and I give them a an upside down drawing. Betty Edwards used a Pablo Picasso drawing. In my book, I used a drawing by David Hockney um, to simply draw what they see. Don't draw what you think you see. Don't draw what you think David Hockney was drawing. Just copy the same lines you see, line by line by line. And students think this is a crazy thing. They think it's a boring thing. They think it's stupid. They're fretting. They're uncomfortable. I can't draw. You're making me do something out of my comfort zone. And yet, after about three minutes, and it only takes about three minutes to see what happens, is to tell the students to turn their paper right side up and to compare it with the drawing right side up. And it's amazing to see the the feeling of sort of exultation that students um, experience when they realize they've just made a very good copy of a David Hockney drawing. And I've learned that, that what has happened in education, and Betty Edwards says this as well, um, and her book is from the 70s, is that American education uh, essentially teaches students how not to draw. That is, um, the way the system is set up, uh, students are allowed until about third or fourth grade to do whatever they want to do, finger painting and, you know, draw an elephant on the moon. But as they get further and further into their education, the way the system is set up, students are discouraged from drawing. And they're told that their drawing isn't good or not quite up to snuff or it doesn't look like what it's supposed to be. And they get discouraged and so many students are so discouraged, so scarred by what they have heard in their educations that they don't want to draw because it's actually painful. It hurts them. They, they are practically in tears because they've been told they don't know how to draw. So I've learned from students that I have to undo that and I have about five weeks to do it in a 15-week class because they need to you know get going on these etudes um, by about the fifth week. What I've realized is with a lot of encouragement and a, and a lack of judgment, that is, I don't judge their works. I Everything that they produce to me is fantastic, whether they consider themselves to be an artist or not. When I see what they do, I look at that as a wonderful exploration and I encourage them and I prompt them and I cajole and I urge and I do everything I can for them to see the work that they do with new eyes. And it's a lot of work. I have to say, it's a lot of work to break those barriers down. And I realize for social science practitioners, people you know, who are um, teachers or who are getting their graduate degrees who are much older than, than say, undergraduates, um, that they may approach this book with a lot of trepidation. That they also have been taught they don't know how to draw. And they have also been hurt and damaged by people telling them that they aren't good and that they have avoided drawing because they're better at words. So I realize that the intended audience that I'm going for may approach my book with a kind of reticence, that they're kind of scared to try it. Well, I try to get past that in the in the first two chapters by giving as much encouragement in word that I can, and to encourage them to stop judging. That's really what it comes down to, is the freedom to draw, the freedom to see deeply and to draw as a way to see, it depends on um, freedom from self-judgment. That's what I've realized.
1: I was wondering if you could talk more about your intended audience and and what are the breakthroughs you hope they're able to make?
0: Well, you know, um, it's, I guess, intended audience is such a a hard thing to imagine. But, you know, you have to write a book for somebody. You can't just write words. Um, Although I do, I do think there are some anthropologists We might talk about this too. I think there are some anthropologists who are just writing for themselves and they have no intended audience. And the results of their work sometimes um, uh, uh, manifests itself as unreadable, um, but we won't go there right now. I think the the idea is that my intended audience is – I was writing it for my undergraduate students. That's the bottom line. I have taught this class so many times. I know that group of people intimately, and I feel that I can talk to them very easily. Um, so that's my main intended audience. I also hope that I reach or that my work is of interest to people who are, uh, as I say, you know, beyond that, that are either in the field or are teachers, professors, um, that they also will find something but they were not my primary audience, frankly. I just hope that they can read it in a way that they find something of use. Um, because I think you know, trying to have an intended audience that is too broad, then the the writing becomes very stilted and weird because you're, you're trying to talk to um, professors laterally using the jargon of anthropology, and you're also trying to speak to undergraduates, you know, freshmen who have just entered college. Yeah, that's two totally different groups. So it was uh, a little bit difficult forming the language that I would use to communicate to such a wide body. And I also realized about halfway through the book um, that I was seeing a lot of different kinds of articles and references coming from completely other fields. Medical technology, um, people who were dealing with social services, perhaps with people who had schizophrenia or other mental uh, issues were also trying to incorporate drawing into their therapies or their work, and I realized that might also be a part of the audience I'm trying to reach, Um, I guess what I decided to do was to make the book as accessible and approachable as possible. And that um, in doing that, if people are expecting it to be highly theoretical or to be um, filled with the kind of rhetoric and verbiage of typical cultural anthropology, well, they're, they're probably not going to find it in my book. Well, good. Then that means they can get through my book faster. <laughs> I, I hope it is accessible and readable and that the etudes, if people, my feeling is a lot of people will approach this book as a book of words and they might see the etudes as being uh as you might see illustrations in a magazine as the kind of extra but this book is not like that at all if a person reads the book but does none of the exercises they will probably gain nothing except some some interesting funny stories that i tell but they won't be able to draw in order to see the the etudes the exercises are absolutely essential that in order to make the book work The reader has to do the exercises, even though they will be cringing or crying while they're doing them. They have to do them. It's like any other. That's why I call them etudes. I don't know if you uh, ever practiced an instrument or played music, but you know, whenever you learn an instrument, you have to play etudes. That's the way you learn how to play the instrument. You have to you have to go through the process of doing the things that are necessary to know how to play the instrument. Scales. You have to know how to articulate the instrument, whether it's bowing or, or mouthpiece or whatever it is, but you won't you won't progress. If you just look at the music, of course you're not going to get anything out of it. You won't, know, you won't know how to play the bassoon if you just look at bassoon music. You have to play the bassoon, and you have to practice, and you have to do the etudes. And I try to make it as fun as possible. And I'm also, in the book, trying to stand, uh, metaphorically, stand by the reader's right shoulder saying, You know, tapping you on the back and saying, good job, keep going, keep trying, because that's what's needed. People are terrified of doing um, exercises and they think they can skip it in this book that is missing the whole point.
1: How would you say that your own experience uh, as an academic and artist has changed by doing these etudes over and over or teaching these etudes over and over? How have you changed the way you engage with uh, whatever you're producing?
0: Well, it's really interesting because um, when I give the etudes to students, if I'm not um, walking around encouraging them, like if it's one of the more quiet exercises where they're taking, say, you know, five minutes to do something, um, I'm actually doing it too. I'm, and I've done some of these exercises Well, you can imagine I've taught the class for 10 years. I've done some of these exercises over and over and over and over. I always learn something new because each effort to see For example, one of the exercises, I don't remember where it is in the book, it might be towards the end. One of the exercises is to try to draw your normal writing hand, to draw it on a piece of paper using your non-writing hand. That is, you're holding the pencil in a hand that is unfamiliar with holding pencils and you're looking at your usual, the hand that writes and you're trying to draw it in as much detail as possible all the little lines, all the bumps, all the freckles, the scrapes, the nicks, the toenails, the fingernails, whatever it is that's on your hand. Because we're so unfamiliar with our own hands. We don't look at them with any great detail. We don't see them. We look at them. And so doing that exercise, which I do every time with the students, I've looked at my hand for years now. And I, every time I do it, I see a different hand. I see something Different, something that is much more interesting, and uh, I realize something different about my writing hand every time I do it. So the drawing exercises are not something that I that I do, or that students should do, or that readers hopefully would do. It's not just to do it once. It's a it's a piece of practice. That's that's what an etude is. You do it over and over and over, and you never do finish. It's not like you've completed it. It's that you go back to it because each time you do it, you learn something new. So I'm constantly learning new things and constantly in my class devising new etudes as I see fit. You know, if I if I learn something new by doing the etudes and I realize it could be done a better or more interesting way, then I will create another etude for the for the students that take my class.
1: Could you talk more about how um, practicing um, these exercises, how they change the practitioner's relationship to their body and their relationship to the rest of the world?
0: Yes, this is where it gets a little, a little odd for um, some cultural anthropologists who are not, um, say, maybe not doing um, body-oriented work. Um, people that are more um, focused towards systems or um, economics or something like that. I think it's very important in ethnographic doing ethnographic work to realize that we as humans are doing our research with our entire body. It's not just our eyeballs on a stalk stuck to a brain and an arm attached to it. We're our entire body and our entire body is a sensing entity and we as ethnographers owe it to the people we're doing research with but we also owe it to the people who are going to read our work to give them as thorough uh an explanation of what we have experienced as possible so that if an ethnographer is too focused on you know the the main sensing uh, organs, the eyes and the ears, then what the reader will get is a, is a, uh, an inferior, really, I hate to say it, but an inferior, um, perspective of what that ethnographer has experienced, um, feeling temperature, feeling, um, uh, emotional senses, feeling, uh, sensing the smell and taste. It's a, it's a. I mean, our bodies have to be sort of pan sensual, and we have to be like sponges and pick up everything we can, in order to present as thorough as Geertz might call it thick description. It has to include everything. It can't just be the um, the, the typical, uh, you know, the, the senses we depend most on. It's got to expand to include all of our body and all senses, including senses that we might not even really believe are senses, premonitions. I think an ethnographer needs to realize what they feel in terms of, uh, do they feel somebody looking at them? Do they feel apprehensive? All of those things have to be incorporated into at least the field notes, whether it makes it to the to the final publication or not has to be recorded otherwise we're doing a great disservice to the people who are putting up with us to do the research we do because that is often the case you know even my my friends the botox i knew for a fact that many times they were rolling their eyes as soon as i turned my head because you know it's you know very close to wasting their time well it's a disservice i think i've wa- i truly have wasted their time if i haven't considered myself as a thorough broad uh, um integrated sensing body it has to be all incorporated now i can only in this book i can only really attend to those aspects which can be documented through line because that's my interest here is drawing but it there are exercises in there about looking um say at surfaces where does you know what's on the surface of the thing that you're looking at where does the edge of something uh disappear where where is a a line going to indicate where the the shape of the neck um as it curves into the shoulder, well, in making a line, you have to make a decision of what you're trying to indicate. And that means you have to be sensitive to all aspects of what your eyes are seeing. And that may include tapping into these other senses. And movement is, of course, a, a very difficult thing to document in line, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And so I have some exercises on in that chapter two on movement. We, in the at the beginning of the book, um, I have a little section on this. That in fact it's almost impossible. It, the, what we're trying to do theoretically, what we are trying to do, is nearly impossible. It's it is trying to capture the essence of a place, of people, of individuals, of of a group, of smells and and tastes and we're trying to incorporate ourselves into that world Document it in words and photographs and if they're lucky people could do drawings to document it then to synthesize it to make sense of it to reduce it to essentialize it present it in a way that's actually readable it's nearly impossible you know it's all do so but that in a way that's what frees us as ethnographers, is to realize the impossibility of what we're trying to do is almost comical, then it kind of frees you because it it allows you to think, as long as I'm doing this to the utmost and with the greatest respect for the people I'm working with, and with the greatest admiration for the people that have gone before, that is the you know, the anthropologists on on whose work we're standing, and with the a greatest expectation for the people who are going to read our work, if we do it with a good heart, is the only way I can say it, with an open mind and a good heart, then I think that's about as good as it's going to get. And in a way, that's freeing to realize you can't make the, the most excellent book. You, you'll never – look, there's no way for one person to write an ethnography on the Toba Bataks of North Sumatra. No way. No one person can do it because it's their culture is emergent. They've changed since I was there. How, how is my book is already out of date. It represents them when I was there in 1994 and 95. So in a way I'm kind of freed up because that's all I'm purporting to do is to give a reader an idea of what it was like to be there the time I was there to the best of my ability and as honest to myself as I can be.
1: The very first image in this book is your rendition of the local marketplace At your field site in Indonesia, you describe how showing this image to your carving teacher and his wife elicit responses that are both instructive and creative. For instance, uh, you've rendered the women's clothing incorrectly and are corrected, but also this prompts a moment of storytelling because um, they look at this image and they can guess what happens next. What do you think happens uh, when you share the images that you render in the field uh, as opposed to keeping them private?
0: Well, of course, it really depends on the culture, because I think some cultures would find it terribly offensive um, to be depicting, um, you know, in some cultures, they might find it offensive to be depicting the human form. Um, in others, they might find it offensive that you're making a depiction that's look, that looks like a person, so that you're, you're sort of... Um, uh, taking on the responsibility of of making a document of a real person, but you know the Botox certainly weren't like that. They loved these drawings. I showed when I did finally show them, um, which was not on purpose as as it turned out, i was I had drawn other things in this same um, sketch pad, and my carving teacher flipped through and found that drawing that I put in the beginning of the book. Um, but they th- they loved it. They they had no problem with it at all, and my worst fear was they would see it as um, a caricature, what we call in, in you know in the West a caricature. They didn't see it that way at all. They just saw it as a documentary drawing, as a picture, something like a photograph. Um, I think it really depends on the person doing the research to sort of suss out the the group they're working with. You know, does it make sense? Is it appropriate to make a drawing that you will then show to the local people? But if it's possible, I think it's an excellent way. Um, it's like there's a there's a method called photo elicitation, which is where you take photographs and you show them to the people and you ask the local people to tell you anything they can about the photograph. It's like that. And I think it could be very useful. I found out, you know, I I learned a great deal, not just about the way women wear the uh, head cloth, but also about their perception of a drawing as something that that, to me, it was a snapshot. It was a snapshot, a kind of idealized snapshot of the marketplace, which I could not take a good picture of, photograph of. And so I saw it as a kind of snapshot documentary. They saw it as a kind of moment in an ongoing story, uh, which is very different. I was trying to document they were seeing it as a as a as a moment in which a story had been halted, but they were willing to tell the rest of the story. So my friend Ito is the one that was telling me you know, oh, and this, you know, the people, you can see these people just left the table, their three glasses, and they were probably having a good time. And she wove this completely made-up story about people that were not in the picture that she imagined had been there. And I think um, as, a, as a researcher trying to understand another person's or another group's perspective on the environment that they live in, it could be a very, very rich way to um, prompt people to talk about their world in a very different way. Because I didn't, I got information from that and from other drawings I did. Because I did some other drawings that I showed, um, some some bugs that I did. I got all kinds of information that I never even would have thought to ask. So I think drawing can be as a as a product, as a, as opposed to using drawing as a process as a way to see you. A, a, a researcher could use a, a finished drawing as a product to um, show to local people and and let them explain it. It could be very rich, I think.
1: In terms of, uh, or in the context of your class, what happens when your undergraduate students share the images that they're producing? What kind of, um, what do they get out of sharing those images with each other?
0: It's hard at first because none of them want to show them because they all think they're terrible. And they're especially, you know, if I ask them to close their eyes and draw an ostrich on the paper without looking at it, well, you can guess that that's going to look like crazy. Um, and they often do. And everybody, when they open, finally open their eyes and look at their own drawing, they um, start giggling because it looks just ridiculous. But once I encourage them to show their drawing to everybody else in the class that is just hold it up because we sit in a in a horseshoe so they can each see it if if you hold it up they realize that everybody's drawing is just as wonderful or as they're thinking terrible as theirs and i think what they learn from this is that even the kids in the room who might consider themselves to be artists that their drawing is on par with theirs that it doesn't that the that there are times when having so-called talent or an ability has nothing to do with the projects that we are doing in the class, and I think that enables a lot of people. It really does enable them to rethink who they are. And I have to say, I've had two very nice moments where students that were in one was in retail management uh, major, and another one was in I think cinema arts. Um, after they did four or five of these drawing exercises both went on were so encouraged with the work that they saw that, that they decided to go on in fine arts instead that they saw something that they had never seen in themselves, that they could actually create lines that were meaningful, that they, uh, that they felt good about and they changed their majors. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for people to open themselves up as long as the judgment is gone. That is self judgment. As long as, as long as a person can get rid of that, I think there's a lot to be gained by trying these exercises. You know, just try them. If you don't like them, don't do them again. You, know, you don't have to. You don't have to keep doing these. It's just it's just me as an author asking readers to give it a try.
1: I wonder if we might return to a comment you made earlier about your commitment to accessibility. And making this series of exercises accessible to a wider uh, a wider audience, um, not necessarily in your field or not just in academia. Could you speak to that?
0: Um, the exercises, you mean, as opposed to the writing? Both. Uh, the book. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, I tried the, the exercise, the etudes. Um, I think, um, I hope, I can't make, you know, I don't know this because the book has just come out, so I haven't gotten any feedback yet, but I wrote. The book and created the exercises, selected the exercises, in order to be uh, accessible. And by that, I mean that somebody sitting and reading the book on their own could teach themselves how to do this. So that's what I mean by accessible: that that you don't need me and you don't need an art teacher standing around telling you how to do it. I hope that the instructions are. Um, gleefully vague enough, but informative enough to get the person to understand what I'm trying to get them to do. So the et- etudes, I hope, are pretty, um, pretty fair and, um, self-contained. The writing, yes, well, you know, I, I mentioned before that, um, I've taken a, a bit of a, a bit of a, sorry, a bit of a risk. Um, in writing, the way I decided to write, um, in that it is not what you would call um, typical academic um, cultural anthropology writing. It's very thin on theory, and the things I'm saying are certainly not encased in theory. There's some theory in there as a as a kind of foundation, but it's not it's certainly not a you know a stew of theories. Um, from which documentary evidence arises i'm i'm just not very interested in that i don't think that um a lot well let's say it this way there is enough anthropological writing currently happening that is ineffective in that it's so difficult to read that even experts have difficulty getting the point that we need as anthropologists in general to move beyond that style. We're at a point in human history, and I think current American experience, political experience right now, um, may prove this, that we're at a point right now that we need to make ourselves clearer what we're saying and what we know. We have to be able to reach out to a much broader audience than we have in the past. For many, many years, I think the entire time I was going to graduate school, um, it, I, it felt as though the articles I was reading was for somebody else, not even for me. I don't know who they were writing to, but they didn't feel like they were to me. they didn't feel like they were talking to me or that they cared whether I understood what they were trying to say. And that's a terrible indictment. I mean, I, I don't say that lightly. I say that with a kind of sadness, that there, that there is so much writing out there that could be – that could have been written to a wider audience. And that wider audience could have learned something more about the fascinating worlds that anthropologists, ethnographers deal with. It's almost as if we have – we stopped wanting people to know. So I wrote this book on purpose. In the most, what I feel is the most accessible. Um, some people have called it popular or colloquial. I just say most accessible way because I want to reach as broad an audience as possible. I have a target audience, but I would love it if other people read it too and got something from it. Um, so I think you know the idea of trying to to seriously think as an author what do I really want to say? Why do I want to say it? Um, How is what I'm saying useful to the person that's taking their time to read the book? Because, you know, we're all overworked. It's very difficult for people to sit down with a book like this and just read it from, from end to end. Nobody has that much time. I understand that people will be skipping through And that people will read one chapter and skip the next. I understand that. But I do hope also that my writing is at least engaging enough that I might keep them reading most of a chapter and then moving on to the next rather than skipping. And that is very hard to do. I think you may realize that. That kind of writing is very, very difficult to do. It's easier to write a lot of words than a few words. And I cut. I edited a lot with that in mind. That. I chose each word to say what I wanted it to say.
1: Well, congratulations on producing this book, which is beautifully written and accessible thank you. and opens up a world of exciting possibilities for social science practitioners. Well, thank you. We've taken up a lot of your time, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about what you're working on now.
0: All right, briefly. Um, Let's see. I, I just got done with this book and I'm, I have to say I'm kind of exhausted, slightly mentally exhausted. It was very difficult to write. Um, I, I had to incorporate so many things. Of course, I left out so many things because I was trying to write um, a, a short book. 175, I think, pages, it, you know, I, I didn't get to include all of the wonderful things that I've looked at, but I'm kind of exhausted now. And I'm still teaching, you know, my three courses per semester, and that takes up a great deal of my time. I think my current project is going to be to ponder. I'm going to spend a lot of time pondering before I make my next serious move. I've got a couple of projects. One um that might turn out completely crazy, and I'll just throw it away. But um, it has to do with incorporating my experiences going to garage sales and estate sales with my dream world. It sounds pretty crazy, right? It will end up being not anthropological in the sense of proper academic anthropology, but will be something closer, I think, to creative nonfiction. And I think that's the direction I'm moving at this point in my career i I think i'm- I feel kind of done writing that kind of strict um theoretically based citation heavy academic um anthropological writing. I just think I'm done with it it's, it' i'm I'm just I don't want to say I'm too tired it just just isn't isn't working for me so I'm looking for new avenues and of course I'm continue to do my um artwork and my music. So I think I'm going to do that for at least another year before I have enough energy to actually start something again.
1: Thank you so much for your time. And well, the world of creative nonfiction awaits.
0: Okay. Thank you, Sarah, for inviting me to do this. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you to the musical artist Panther for the use of our intro-outro music. You can find him on Spotify and Bandcamp at P-A-N-T-H-U-R-R.